Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today Grant Dasher is going to wrap up our several week series on the Bible. We spent the past three weeks on the New Testament, and today will be the end of that, as you might guess, the book of Revelation. Revelation is a very uh, difficult book, a very complicated book, a very confusing book, and a book that most Christians probably don't agree on. Um, And so I think Grant will do a wonderful job explaining that. Certainly it starts with letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and that part is pretty self-explanatory, but then it moves into uh, some apocryphal uh, language and some things that are assuredly hard to understand. And yet, there is something that God is trying to tell us through a book like Revelation, just as he was trying to tell John in this vision. Um, And so I I trust that it will be extremely good this morning, and a book certainly that we don't spend enough time with. So, let's go to Grant Dasher right now as he teaches on Revelation. Alright, thank you. Alright, let me... uh open my computer I tried to print out my a lesson my printer is uh, it's, it's horrible so <laughs> it's like I, I should just not try anymore I'm just gonna do this from for, from now on out um, all right <clears throat> I just want to start out by reading uh, by reading something here uh, give me give me one second all right Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to, it, to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie and a temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians, for the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth... There has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with 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 a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdoms, wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And this is the best part. And no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands. For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? 
Jesus is the Christ, Son of the Eternal, living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Those are the words of Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church in China. And as we sit here this morning, right here, he is sitting in a jail cell in the custody of the Chinese Communist government. And when I read this, there is no doubt in my mind that Pastor Yi has spent a considerable amount of time reading Revelation. Like you heard some, some Revelation language in there, right? About the thousand year church. He knows the score, obviously. He knows the end of the story. And most of all, he knows that he's not alone. God is with him, and God is in complete control. So he wrote this letter before he was captured because he knew. Like he, when he, he, this guy is speaking pretty boldly. He knew what was coming. And he said, if I'm gone, if I'm taken into custody after 48 hours, release this letter. And that was, uh, I think, December 18th, just, just about a month ago. So if you grew up in the Church of Christ, you may not know this, but Revelation is a very controversial book. We don't really talk about it much in, in our church. <laughs> Probably, you know, because it's confusing and we'd, we'd rather talk about other things. Um, but there's a lot of richness in Revelation. Um, churches have split over different interpretations of this book. Thanksgiving dinners have been ruined because of varying opinions of Revelation. And I'll be honest. When I read about Chinese Christians being locked up in prison or worse because of their faith in Christ, those arguments over whether the dragon is literal or figurative just sound absurd, right? Like in the context of what Pastor Yi is going through, when people argue over like the millennia and literal figurative and there's like these fights happening, it just sounds stupid. It just does, right? However, let me quickly give, because I'm teaching on Revelation, let me quickly give a rundown of the different views on Revelation. The first is the Preterist view, and I hope I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing these all correctly because I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in this. But the first is, a, is the Preterist view, and this view holds that the prophecies in Revelation were fulfilled in the first few centuries after it was written. So everything we read in Revelation has essentially already happened, right? And the challenge with this is that I think it ignores the last part of, of Revelation and, and lots and even through through the middle part of Revelation, which is judgment, right? Which we know has not occurred. So it kind of ignores that, which is a big part of Revelation. The second view would be the historicist view, which is that Revelation is being fulfilled throughout the course of Western history. The problem with this is it's a little egocentric, maybe, um, and it would have made Revelation totally irrelevant to the people that it was written to. Like, that doesn't, like, they would have been reading it and they would have been like, what, are you, what, what is this talking about? They wouldn't have known. The next view is the futurist's view, um, and this is that chapters 4 through 22 are still awaiting fulfillment in the future. And again, what application would this have had to its original readers? They would have gotten to chapter 4, like, they'd have been like, chapter, chapters 1 through 4, saw like throne room stuff, they'd be like, man, this is awesome. They get to chapter 5 and they're like, or 4, and they're like, what is this talking about? It wouldn't have had any application to its original readers. So I don't think that 
that that holds up too much. And the last view is the idealist view that Revelation has been and is being fulfilled symbolically. So it's just a book of, of, of ma- mainly symbols, and it's being has been and is being fulfilled symbolically throughout the, the history of the church. And I think this interpretation is, probably has some good good things in it, but, but it might pl- downplay some of the literal nature of Revelation. So. Then, on top of all that, you've got the three different views of the millennium, this thousand-year reign of the Messiah. So you have premillennialism, which is that Jesus will return before the millennium. I'm going to say millennial, millennial falcon, falcon. I'm really struggling over all these words. Postmillennialism, which is that Jesus will return after the millennium. And then ah or amillennialism, which is that the millennium is present is, is the present church age, and there is no other future millennium to come before or after Jesus' return. The millennium is just a symbol of the time that we're living in now. So I, I was going to make a, a PowerPoint that only included one video clip. That was, it was going to be Forrest Gump saying that's all I have to say about that. But I, was, I just didn't want to do it, honestly, so I'll just tell you about it. Um, but that's it. I, that's kind of where um, I'm going to stop uh, with, with the, the, I guess, the discussion on those different views. Um, I don't really understand everything about Revelation. I've got some ideas of what I think and where I think I fall in maybe that debate. Um, but I'm not really, I'm pretty convicted that it's not really that important and that the most important thing um, about Revelation is this. Number one, what Christ has already done. Number two, what he's doing now through the church by his spirit. And then number three, what he will do when he returns. And that I do understand. I can read Revelation and I may not understand, you know, all the symbols and all the Old Testament references, but I understand that. And I can see that. And, and Revelation is ripe with those three things. So I haven't really said anything about the actual book of Revelation yet. So let's start talking about Revelation. Jump right in here. It was written by Kyle. Yeah. Not Kyle. That was a question. It wasn't written by you. John. It was written by John. Yeah, there's a question mark on the end of that. Not a period. It was written by John. Maybe it was the John that wrote the Gospel of John, or maybe it was another John. We can argue about it and, and have a church split over it later. Um, but John is writing Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And some of the churches are struggling with persecution by the Romans. Some are overcome with sexual sin, uh, pagan rituals. Some are lukewarm because they're just filthy rich. They got all this money, and they're like, man, life is pretty good. And they're just kind of like lukewarm, right? And some are still faithful. But all seven churches are struggling one way or another and are all in need of the same thing, motivation, all of them, something to spur them on. And what could be better than a prophetic word from God himself, right? There's nothing better than that. So through John, Jesus begins speaking to the seven churches. He's rebuking, so he's like calling them out. He's encouraging the ones that are doing well or need maybe maybe just a little bit of encouragement to do better. And ultimately, he's calling all of them to overcome, all of them. He keeps saying, overcome, overcome, overcome. And how does Jesus 
go about motivating all these different people to overcome. They all have different struggles, right? The church at Smyrna is poor and persecuted, and maybe some of them are on the verge of giving up. And on the other hand, the church at Laodicea is wealthy. And as a result, like I said, they're, they're lukewarm. So how would you do this? How would you address Highland and early reign covenant church in China with the same letter? What is Jesus going to say to such a diverse group of Christians to motivate them to overcome? Well, turn, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation 4, 1. And it says this, that John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So Jesus doesn't really say anything. He opens the door to heaven and says, John, take a look inside. John says, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So how do we overcome in the midst of poverty that leads to despair, wealth that leads to apathy, persecution that leads to giving up, or how do we overcome just in the midst of sin? Like you just, have, you just have sin in your life and you're overwhelmed with it and you know it and you can't stop doing what you're doing. How do you overcome in the midst of all that? Well, the answer is the same for everybody. Come into the presence of God. And this is why Jesus offers John a glimpse of his glory. He opens the door and just says, hey, come take a look. Because these people in the seven churches, they're all asking the same question. I think they're asking the same question that we ask. Everybody asks this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be persecuted for his sake, to be ridiculed, to be thrown in prison, or maybe in America to, to just be marginalized? Is it worth it for me to give up my social standing for the sake of Christ? You know, is it, is it worth it to be labeled for the, for, the, for the sake of Christ with a label that we don't want? Is it worth it to be sexually pure for his sake? to be willing to give up comfort and wealth for his sake, to be willing to be poor for his sake. And to sum it up, I think we all ask this question. We see the cross standing there, and Jesus says, I, I want you to take up this cross. And I think we all ask that question, is it worth it for me to pick up that cross, to put it on my shoulder, and to carry it for his sake? Could he really, could he really be that great? And to answer, Jesus opens the door and invites John into heaven to witness what's taking place with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And John steps in and he sees God the Father on his throne. And he gives a brief description of God that describes God as just an array of light and color. And then John describes the heavenly beings that surround God. In Revelation 4, 6 through 11. He says, In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. They saw everything, right? They didn't miss anything. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. And the third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy 
our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things by your will they were created and have their being see I think I always wonder like, how did Jesus do it like what what like was he incapable of sinning or or was there some reason that that he, he didn't sin and I think it's because of this I think he had an advantage right he knew that God was worth it when he went to the cross he had already seen what he would later reveal here to John in Revelation. He had been there. He had seen it. And this is the advantage that I think we have now. John has kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit, and he gives us this little glimpse of God on his throne at the center of everything. So now, when we ask that question, if God is worth it, we can just look at this picture that John describes and see that everything revolves around him. Now, please think of this in the context of how we determine what's good in America now. Think about this. How do we determine like what is right and what's good? How do we determine what we're going to put on our sign and hold it up when we protest? How do we determine what we're going to tell our friends on Facebook that they're, you know, you're wrong. I disagree with you. How do we determine this? Anything good or just, where do we think ideas like this come from? Like, we just pull them out of thin air, like they're floating, and we just, there, let me, I've got it here, here it is. Where do we think this comes from? It all comes from Him. Like, we don't have a single concept of love or kindness or justice that doesn't originate with Him. This idea that, that morality just evolves along with society, it just kind of just changes and evolves, or that humans can just know, we just know what's good apart from God, is naive at best and from the pits of hell at worst, right? Now, as I was writing this, I thought, well, that's a little, that's a little harsh. Maybe I should like, maybe I should tone it down a little bit. That's a little harsh, right? And I thought, no, I'm not going to tone that down at all. It is from the pits of hell. Like, that's like, that's true. We miss everything when we don't recognize God as the epicenter of all existence. And then what happens when we don't do that is chaos ensues. All time comes from Him. All creation is the result of words that He spoke. It all flows from Him. And this is what is being sung about Him now, like right now, in this moment. This is how God is being worshipped as we speak right now. He's being worshipped as the center of it all. John says, day and night, they never stop worshipping. So, when we go into worship in a second, or if you're a really good Christian, y'all went to early service. I don't know how y'all do it with kids. It's amazing. So I'm impressed. But when we do that, we're not alone. We are joining in a heavenly chorus that is already praising God. Like we've got some, like we're just the backup singers, right? Like, it's already happening. John witnesses these heavenly beings praising God as holy, meaning he alone is good. Like, there is no good, goodness or source of goodness outside of him. This arbitrary, just out there source of goodness, it doesn't exist. He alone is good. We wouldn't even know what good is if it weren't for him. And I mean people who don't even know God, they still know what good is. And they wouldn't know what, what good was if it weren't for him. They're worshiping God and praising God as eternal, meaning that He was and is and will be in the future. God's outside of time. He never runs out of time, right? He never runs out of time because He controls it. He holds it in His hand. He's eternal. 
They're worshiping God and praising God as creator, meaning that we're here because of him. Everything that exists does so because of him and because of words that he spoke. And they are praising God as sovereign, meaning he is in control. No matter what you're going through, no matter what, what level of hell you're going through in life, he is in control. And after reading this, what do you think the seven churches thought about taking up their cross? I bet they're thinking, hmm, like, what if I'm missing something? What if I'm thinking that, like, this comfort that I have, this wealth that I have, like, it's, it's, like, it's good, but what if, what if there's more? Or what if I'm on the verge of giving up, and I look at that, and I think, man, what if there's more? What if I'm missing something? What if God really is that good? All right, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. But I bet when these next words were read, so keep in mind, like when these letters were circulated, they were read out loud in the church. And I bet when these next words were read, I bet there was massive revival. I bet people like, you know, I I bet it was like people just were just coming forward in droves and repenting. And I bet people's lives changed the day after these words were read. I think people's lives were changed. Revelation 5.1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So here's God with a scroll that contains his sovereign plan for the world, and he holds it in the palm of his hand. And the palm of his hand is the redemption of the world, removal of sin, pain, suffering, an end to death, a new heaven, and a new earth. And then John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So during the first century, property deeds would often, so I've heard, uh, would would often have a brief description of the contents on the outside of the scroll. So the location, the owner, maybe a brief overview of the property would be on the outside. And then a more detailed account of the deed would be on the inside when you open the scroll. So maybe this is what John sees. He looks at the scroll and he can kind of, he's like peeking. He's trying to like, you know, look and see what, what you know, trying to read through the fingers of God's hand. You know, maybe not literally, I don't know. But he's looking and he sees these things written on the outside of the scroll. Redemption of the world, a new heaven, a new earth, forgiveness of sin, no pain, and into death, God being with humanity face-to-face living with us. And somehow John knows at least an overview of God's sovereign plan for the world. But nobody's found worthy to open it. So John starts sobbing because he knows that the redemption, that our redemption, that the forgiveness of sins, the alleviation of pain, the end of death can't happen unless somebody comes and opens that scroll. And for somebody to open that scroll, they have to first be worthy to open the scroll. So why is John so devastated? He's just seen a vision of the holy God. He knows what's going on in the seven churches. He knows the sin in his own life, right? John's got his own stuff that we don't, he doesn't talk about here, but we know that he's a sinful man. And he knows that there's no way that God and humans, the God that he just saw in the throne room, and humans can be together the way things are now. This is a mess. At its best, it's still a mess. God, God can't like just be like, oh, I'm hanging out just in this mess. 
That's not how God operates. He doesn't, that's not how he lives. This is why John is weeping loudly. He is in pain because humans are sinful and nobody is worthy to bring about redemption. Nobody is worthy to open the scroll and unleash all of these good things that God has planned for us. But John says in verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See? So they turn, look, see? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, so he, so he hears someone say, don't weep, look and see a lion. Then he looks up and he says, I saw a lamb looking as, as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He's like, oh, I'm going to walk up here. I'll take that. Thank you. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. John is weeping, right? My translation said that he's crying and crying. And one of the elders says, don't weep. The Lion of Judah is able to open the scrolls. So listen to that contrast. John goes from weeping loudly to what must have been an indescribable joy. And this is where I think, in this little moment here, this is where we see the power of the gospel in the contrast between sinful humanity and the worthiness of Christ. That is why the gospel has power. If you take away either one of those elements, the worthiness of Christ, His deity, or you take away the sinfulness of humanity, the gospel loses its power. It has no power. This is where the power of the gospel is found, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's power in the contrast between who we are and what we become in Jesus. And that feels good, and that feels right. And it leaves me feeling at peace, right? Because I know that it's not dependent upon me, but it was already done for me. When John raises his head, he's looking for a lion, right? He raises his head to see the lion that is worthy. Instead, he sees a lamb that has been slain. But it's not lying there dead, right? It just looks as though it's been slain. Maybe it has the scars. It's bearing the scars of of death. But it's not dead. The lamb is standing. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a new song. And this is a beautiful song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then every living creature everywhere joined in. I wonder if that includes like bacteria. I wonder if that includes, I mean, they're living creatures. 
every living thing everywhere. That's everything everywhere joined in. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. While we were still sinners, the lion became the lamb and conquered sin and death. And he didn't do it with a sword like the Jews thought he would. And, and he didn't do it with policy like those of us in the American church think he should, right? His conquest over sin and evil was death. It was un, no, one, no one expected this. His conquest over death was, was when he walked out of the tomb three days later. And by doing this, Jesus is establishing a new kingdom on earth where those of us who put our faith in what he's done and what he will do are a part of that kingdom. And look, it says we're not like, we're not peasants in that kingdom. We're not just like these slaves, these lowly, lowly people. We're not common folk, right? We are priests. That's Cohen's name in, in Hebrew, by the way, priest. We're not Jewish, but we, named him, we gave him a Jewish name. But we are priests and we will reign with him. Why is this important? Like why, why does this matter? I think it matters because we need a new kingdom. I mean, right? Like, do we need a new kingdom? I mean, I, does anyone look at what's going on and think, ah, oh, this, this is actually, we're, you know, things are really good right now. Man, the kingdom, you know, we, man, it's like, we're doing really well. It's important because we need a new kingdom. I think, this is my opinion, and I'm, I may be wrong, but I think we live in the greatest kingdom ever established by humanity here in the United States and even still. There's some really horrific stuff in our past, right? And there's some really horrific stuff happening now, right? There are horrific things happening in China. Christians there are longing for a new kingdom. All over the world, people are putting their hopes in the kingdoms of human beings only to either be let down or worse, destroyed. And this is what we see in Revelation 6 through 20. So 14 chapters here that I don't have time to go through, but first century Christians reading this letter were living in a time when Rome was God. Like that's what Rome was. Caesar was God. Rome was God. There was military power, economic power. But if you didn't have the favor of Rome, you were crushed. But John makes the point that throughout, throughout Revelation that Rome isn't the first kingdom to do this. He's like reminding them. This is not, this is the first time this has happened, right? He continually refers back to Babylon. And this would have been a powerful image for the Christians reading this because Babylon had what? It had turned to dust. Babylon was, was God dealt with Babylon, right? And that's what John is saying. This amazing military and economic power that nobody could stand against was wiped from the face of the map. Didn't even exist anymore. And those Christians reading this would have known. And then they would have looked at Rome and thought, okay, I, I see your point, John. John makes the point that Babylon's, they come and they go. Rome will come and it will go. China will come and it will go. The United States, and I know this is a sacred cow, the United States will come and it will go. And I love this country, 
but it will go one day. There is a kingdom that has been established that will never go. It will never end. Mm. And unlike the kingdoms of humanity, this kingdom does not let you down. That's what John is saying. This kingdom does not crush you, but instead lifts you up when you humble yourself. It brings you up out of poverty and sickness and destruction and death, and it does it with finality, right? It does it forever. And here's the best part. This kingdom is coming to earth, not, now, not later, but now. This kingdom of God is coming through Jesus' Spirit, His Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We are the ones who advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth now. Like we get to start this now. We don't have to wait. John uses symbols of seals on scrolls and trumpets and bowls. That rhymed. That was good. That's really good. Uh, to illustrate suffering, right? He talks about war, conquest, famine, and death. And he talks about the cries of the martyrs who, who are imprisoned and killed for their faith in Jesus. And then he talks about God's righteous judgment. He says there will come a day, and it will be a, a singular day, one day, when God will crush evil once and for all. And I think, I think I've told this story before. Revelation is terrifying. It will terrify you. So I got to the part about judgment. It was very terrifying. It is scary. Um, <laughs> there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I love telling the story, probably because I think it's hilarious, but I think there's an application to be, to be uh, you know, given here as well. But one night I was praying with Cohen, and he said, and God, he's praying, he's saying, God, you already crushed Satan, but next time you're going to do an even better job, and you're going to throw him into the lake of, the fire, lake of fire. And I was like, man, there you go, Cohen. Cohen would have made a great preacher in like the 1950s. He'd been like, boom, he'd have been hellfire and brimstone, bringing the heat. But John confirms what Cohen prayed, right? And obviously Cohen's heard me say these things. So I, I do teach my son about God throwing uh, Satan into the lake of fire. Uh, but John confirms what, what Cohen was praying, right? We know that the power of Satan was, was crushed when Jesus died and he rose. Like, Satan has no power over us, right? When we resist him, he flees from us, right? We have been covered with the blood of Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, so Satan has no power over us. He was crushed. But John says there will come a day, as Cohen says, when God will do an even better job, right? Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, justice is coming. Whether you are the person who is receiving injustice or whether you are the person who is administering injustice, justice is coming. And that's what Jesus says. And ultimately, the seven churches in Asia Pastor Yi in China, we here in America, we all have a choice, right? Do we put our faith in Babylon? Do we allow Babylon to, to, do we fear Babylon? Or do we choose to put our faith in Jesus? Do we look to the sword or to policy or to science to save us? 
Or do we believe that there is someone who is worthy to open the scroll and unleash the kingdom of heaven here on earth? John says, nobody is stopping this kingdom from advancing. It is coming. It's already begun, right? And then there will come a day when the fullness of it, when the fullness of heaven, which is God himself, he is heaven, it's him. There will come a day when he will come down to earth and he will live here with us. I don't believe in the rapture because we're not going anywhere. The Bible's pretty clear. He's coming to us, all right? Then, let's, let's, let's read what, what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is in uh, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. I love that. (laughs) Maybe that's where we get that. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are, are, are victorious, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God's kingdom is coming. Let's be a part of it now. I think about Pastor Yi, and when you read this last little part, I think that's why when he thinks about those that are imprisoning him, he's not filled with this hatred or rage toward them, which is kind of like shocking, right? You would think he would hate those people. And I think I would, I would, I would really struggle if someone came to my home and they, they took me away from my family and they put me in a room where I couldn't see my children, I would have a hard time not hating those people. I would have a hard time not shooting them, right? <laughs> to be honest, be honest. But when I think about Pastor Yee, and I think the reason that he is filled with compassion toward the people that are imprisoning him is because he looks at this end of story and he knows, like he knows, like, justice will be served. And as much as someone harms you or hurts you, like to think about them living forever without these blessings of God being here on earth and for them to be in a place of torment, that's tough. That's a hard thing, even for people that you hate, right? And so I, um, I just want to pray for us that a we don't get consumed i think our, our i think we all know like what our struggle like where we fall in the seven churches we we're a pretty wealthy church right and not all of us 
not all of us are in this in this you know some of us are struggling financially so but i think that we've got to try not to get bogged down in wealth or even sickness or or death or persecution or all of the same things that the people in the seven churches of asia were going through and instead a look to the kingdom that is already advancing and b look to the kingdom that is going to come fully and completely one day when god comes back to earth and dwells with us and that's good that makes me feel hope um, you know when i read the news i oftentimes feel hopeless and i know many of you do because it is that's why you feel that way but <laughs> it's hopeless uh, isn't that weird yeah it's hopeless but there is hope for another kingdom that never ends that is good that will not let you down and that will be forever so um that's it okay i want to thank grant for doing truly a tremendous job with revelation not an easy or a small task to summarize a book like that in one sunday and i think and i told him this can't imagine a better approach to teaching that material. Um, I think the idea that certainly there are details that we don't understand that we have disagreed about or that people have different theories on, but it's kind of hard to do a Sunday school on that. And really at the end of all that, if you decide that you're a millennial and that this is in reference to future events, what difference does it really make? I think the important thing is, is that um, God's kingdom is here that earthly kingdoms, those of Babylon, those of Rome, those of China, those of the United States, they will come and they will go, but God's kingdom will remain. And that is the story of the Bible at large. And that's what this series has been about. It's a continuous story of God and his people and his promises for those people and his covenant to those people. And we see that from Genesis to Revelation, that his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, that his kingdom is not a short-term kingdom, that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and that we have the ability to be a part of that kingdom and to be citizens of that kingdom, and that, in fact, we are today as Christians. What a wonderful story, what a unique story, and what a beautiful story. And it's been truly an honor and my pleasure to go through that story together. And I hope this story that of the Bible is an inspiration to you, and that it means a tremendous amount to you, and that the gospel is something that we champion and that we teach as often as we possibly can. So that is it for this series. We'll move on into a different series. Uh, we're going to move into a class with the HOPE class, which is made up predominantly of people in their 60s and 70s, and so a sort of intergenerational class. After that, we're going to do a DVD series on I Can Only Imagine. I don't know if we'll podcast that one, uh, but we'll be in touch. And if you're in the Memphis area on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., come see us here at Highland Church of Christ in the Bridge Builders classroom. We'd love to have you with us. That's all I have for this week. Hope you have a wonderful week, um, and we will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. See you next time. Bye-bye.